Are we there? Yeah. They'll get it. Those guys are amazing back there. They'll get this. Hey, good morning, everybody. Yeah, we should give it up to those guys. They do a great job back there. Uh, uh, man, it's good to see everybody. Everybody seems so stoked and energetic today. What? It's cold and miserable outside. It's what? Oh, the bake set. The sugar high. That's it. I was hoping it was something else. Okay. <laughs> hey, it's good to see everybody. Uh, when I was young, I had a, a, a friend uh, in my teenage years, right after graduating high school. He was a really good friend. His name was Keith. And it was probably the very first, like, grown-up friendship that I had, like, where we really seemed to, to interact with each other and care about each other. I, I, you know, I left home when I was 16. And the last year and a half of high school, I, I spent you know, living with whoever had a room for me, uh, usually friends' houses. I was the quintessential couch surfer uh, at that time. And Keith and I struck up a friendship during that time. And I can honestly say he was one human being in my immediate surroundings. I had family that cared about me, but the one human being in my close surroundings that actually, you know, was looking out for me. And it was reciprocal. We'd look out for each other in that. We became really good friends. Now, of course... Life goes on, we've, we've moved to different states, we keep in touch through the internet, uh, but distance and time mean that we're no longer close like we were before. But if I was going to introduce you to Keith in his absence, I wonder how I would do it. I could describe to you what he looks like, uh, but even there, my memories of him are from you know, thousands of years ago, uh, and, and, and so he now looks different from that. I could describe some of our exploits, recite some of the things that he'd say, the jokes that we had, but you don't really know at that point what he said or what he did. It would still fall short of you knowing what Keith was really like or is really like. I suppose if I took the time, I could recite some of the things that he said, describe some of his actions, and then add deeper details of his character that motivated him, what it was that was motivating him in in these things. Uh, And and that would maybe give you a better idea of the actual human being behind the name, behind this abstract person that I'm trying to describe to you. It would take some time, and I'd I'd have to just kind of narrow things down to a few experiences, highlight the most meaningful parts of them, and then, maybe then, you'd get a clearer picture of who this person was and what he meant to me. That is how the Gospel of John has been written. And that is the new series that we are starting today, exploring the fourth gospel. If you've got a way of following along, if you'll find your way to John chapter 1, please, the fourth gospel. So find the New Testament. If you're using an old school analog Bible, find the New Testament, make your way through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and you'll find yourself at John this is, uh, is going to be my third time <laughs> teaching through this gospel. The first was way back when Eastgate first started, and mercifully, there's no copies of that left. Uh, <laughs> I taught through it again about 10 years ago, and I just really felt inspired to comb through this gospel uh, yet again. One of the things that I've promised to God is that for as long as I have left to preach, I'm going to bring our focus back to Jesus. If there's one thing I believe we need 
as the church, it's Jesus. We've got plenty of other stuff going on, lots and lots of other influence. We need Jesus so desperately. So we've been revisiting the Gospels. We just, you know, we'll do a few other books, but I'm committed to it. We're going to keep coming back to this. And you may say, oh man, this place, all they do is go through the Gospels and talk about Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I think, uh, you know, I think John's Gospel will make clear for us why it would be an important practice for us to keep coming back to this keep revisiting the story of this man. John's gospel stands apart as very different from the other three gospels. They're technically described as synoptic gospels. That's a nice word. You can drop at a party somewhere and sound really cool. Uh, Please don't invite me to that party. It sounds very dull. But uh, a synoptic gospel means that they're providing a broader story, a chronological narrative about Jesus's life and teaching and death and resurrection. It goes from the beginning through to the end of it. John's not like that. This gospel focuses on just a few vignettes uh, and he lingers on them. He carefully teases out details from them that provide a clearer picture of who Jesus is to the author. Dr. Tim Mackey says where the three synoptic gospels are more like graphic novels, quickly paced action sequences that take us through the story from beginning to end. John is like meditating on a painting by Rembrandt slowly discovering details in the dark and the light contrasts. Modern research has uh, compellingly put the date of this writing somewhere between 70 and 100 AD, much earlier than was proposed by uh, critical scholars uh, for a long time. Uh, This would make this, though, the last entry of the eyewitness gospel accounts. But Remember, the other gospel accounts, they were written over a span of about 50 or 60 years. You know, sometimes I think we get the impression that Jesus ascended into heaven and the disciples all got busy, got behind their keyboards and started hammering out the the gospels and they all got published on Amazon at about the same time. But that's not what happened. It actually took time. Uh, The stories got told verbally to one another, were told and retold and retold. And then finally later, these were compiled into written form. The debates about the author, like which John is the author here, those debates go all the way back to the second century. And the reality is the author never identifies himself uh, of this book. You know, every once in a while, he's going to break the fourth wall as we're going through it. He's going to peek in and say, by the way, we didn't understand what he was saying then, but we got it later on or those kinds of things. But he never actually tells us who he is. He, He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved five different times throughout this work. Most scholars throughout history have landed on John, the son of Zebedee, uh, as the author, one of Jesus's apostles, his disciples. So that would be someone who was close, part of the inner circle of his disciples, and clearly an eyewitness to these things. Tradition also tells us that John was the only apostle not to suffer martyrdom, uh, that he lived to an age somewhere in his 90s, uh, which then would corroborate the idea of the dating of this book, uh, as uh, as I said, modern scholars are, are beginning to see. In John's time of writing, the other three Gospels were already in hand. People had already read those and, and were familiar with them. And people had accepted that Jesus was the Messiah, the waited for anointed one of Israel. And they accepted that he was a human representative of God. But the question then got posed, was he also divine? 
And from the outset, that's what his followers seemed to have believed, that he was divine. But, you know, after 60 years in, people are following these ideas. They're, they're embracing this notion of this, this Messiah who came from Jerusalem or from Galilee. Uh, uh, and, and after 60 years, people are wondering, is he divine? So John, the old one, the last witness, embarks on writing his account to let everyone know what he saw and heard and how it convinced him just of who Jesus is. And that's his focus. So his stories are different from the other three Gospels. In, John Gospel, in John's Gospel, there's a lot of things that we're not going to do. There's no demons that get cast out in John's Gospel. There's no institution of the Lord's Supper in, in John's Gospel. There's no distinct parables told as such, like, you know, and then he said a parable, none of that in John. John tells stories about Jesus that the other gospels actually don't contain. He's not concerned with a, a chronological account. Uh, and so his narrative is just going to bounce back and forth in the timeline a, as we go, selectively choosing stories that help to emphasize his purpose in writing this account. But he, you know, he does this with such precision and intentionality. It's a book that has some of the most profound and theological, even mystical writing that it comes from the ancient world. It's a marvel in so many ways. It is intentionally designed not to give up its secrets on the first reading. It forces us to reread it and to keep traveling back into it to look for the details. And John actually tells us why He's, he's writing this gospel, but he doesn't do it until the end of the story. The original hearers, you know, when, when these things were first told, it wasn't necessarily a setting like this. It was house churches that people would gather in. And so somebody would come and say, hey, we got a copy. This is hot off the person's writing it, the hand, hot off the hand. And, and, and they bring it in and everybody would sit down and they would read it from beginning to end. You know, this before we had attention spans of hamsters, but, but, but they would read it all the way through from beginning to end. And that way, when you got to the end of it, it you know, the, the, he kept the, the, the purpose of this book ambiguous. And then at the end, there would be this awesome twist, kind of like, you know, like the sixth sense or, or the usual suspect, some movie like that. It would have been one of those aha moments that everybody came to at the same time where our mind would race back through everything that we heard and, and, and the pieces would begin to fall into place. Oh, this is what he was saying. This is what he was doing. But in our context, in the way that we, by necessity, have to approach this book, I'm going to skip ahead and reveal the twist ending right now so that we have a clear purpose in front of us for our studies. Why, you know, why we're going through this, why we're looking at this, and it will help us to understand why John's doing some of the things that he does in, in writing this. So at the end of the book... In the next to the last chapter, at the very last verse, John says this. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John's purpose is to prompt us to believe that, that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. And then he expounds on that, describing him as the Son of God, which is a terminology of the divine across the board for Jews and Gentiles alike, a title of divinity. And he's letting us know that if we will believe, we're going to find life in this guy. 
God wants us to engage Jesus in a new way. And in so doing, we actually meet him in the way that John presents us. Actually, we could say, in my experience, it's as though someone comes up from the words of this page and meets us. So I just want to encourage you as we study this gospel, let's not just, you know, come to gather up information about Jesus or religion. Let's challenge our own hearts and minds to meet Jesus in these words that we're going to read together. Now, just really quickly, I want to talk about the structure of John because it's amazing. Uh, after the, the prologue of chapter 1, it's broken neatly into two books. We have the traditionally called the Book of Signs, which is chapters 2 through 12, and the Book of Glory, chapter 13 through 20, with an epilogue on chapter 21. And the book is, is broken down. I don't know if you can see it from wh- where you are, but the precision of this book is fascinating to me. Again, just this amazing document from the ancient world. People, you know, will talk about the primitive nature of this Bible that we follow. Forget that noise. This is incredible stuff that we're looking at. This is unparalleled in on so many levels from 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 contemporary documents that were supposed to be similar. The uh, so uh, the book of signs is broken into eight vignettes. Four in the context of the institutions of Judaism. So we talk about purification and the temple and rabbis and holy landmarks. And then four in the context of the festivals of Judaism. So we have Sabbath and Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles and Hanukkah. And all of these are meant to set up a contrast. Much of John is intended for that. A contrast between light and dark where suddenly details emerge to us that we might not have seen. To, to, to show us a contrast between rigid religious observance and a living, loving Messiah of God. And they also serve as a backdrop to the religious leader's rejection of the Messiah, which is thematic in the book of signs. So this is something that John's going to be talking about, the revelation of this light that shines in the darkness and how the darkness doesn't receive it. It, it rejects it, but it cannot overcome it. Uh, the book of glory is the lead up to the account of Jesus' trial, death, and resurrection. Uh, and, and because it was all arranged around these themes, we're going to be bouncing around the timeline, as I said. So don't bog down on events being out of order. You know, all, all of a sudden, you, we're going to read in John, Jesus goes in and clears out the temple right at the beginning. Well, that's something that happens way at the end of all the other gospels. And People have tried to harmonize that before, saying, oh, well, you know, he did it twice. Well, no, John's just not written that way. John doesn't care about the chronological events. What he wants to do is get at the heart, the heartbeat of what's happening here with this Messiah of God. So don't bog down like if we're reading along and he's in Jerusalem in this verse and suddenly he's in Galilee in the next verse. He's not saying he's got some sort of you know transportation machine or, or something. He's focused on something else. The other thing to note is that all of the themes of this book are seeded through the first chapter as we're going through it. And we'll find these concepts are going to be repeated through the entire work. Themes like light and darkness, seeing and knowing, life and believe and witness and truth and glory. If we can remember those terms, if we can pay attention when we read those terms in this gospel, they're meant to give us give this picture of of Jesus shape and form. It's meant to help us to to see more clearly 
who he is. Okay, well, that's, you know, that's my introduction. I, I could go on for weeks about this book. It's, but, but let's get into it. And again, let's open our minds. Let's open our hearts. Let's meet Jesus through these words. I believe it's possible. I believe we will. We can. Uh, so if you're there in John chapter 1, we're going to start with verse 1. And because we had a long introduction, we're not going to go too far into this today. But it begins in verse 1. In the beginning... The Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness can never comprehend or extinguish it. I put both of those in there because the word in the Greek means both things. You have to decide which it's meaning there. Maybe it means both. Maybe they mean both things in this. Can never comprehend or extinguish it. So where the other Gospels begin, <laughs> well, two of them with genealogies uh, or an Old Testament prophecy about the, uh, the coming of Messiah, John begins with a poem. That tells us something about the nature of this book right off the bat. A hymn, actually. There are questions about whether or not this was inserted later just to keep it from being a cold opening on John the Baptist in verse 19. But based on the entire content of this book, as well as the opening of 1 John 1, it's clear that John intended to begin this this way with this poetry. And oh, what an opening that is. In the beginning. Like, like. This should trigger something right away, right? Like, what other, what other thing do we know begins with in the beginning? Genesis 1, yeah, the very first words of the whole Bible, in the beginning. This is a big statement that John is making here. We don't want to just blow past this. By using these words, he is for all intents and purposes saying, what you're about to read is important, just as important as the very first words of this written revelation we've received. By using these words, he's saying Genesis 1 is pointing here to this moment. And think about this. John is describing then in this, in the beginning, he's describing a second Genesis. This isn't just a story about one person, some ancient teacher in some specific place or time. This is the story of God and the world of creation and conflict. It is the story of recreation for humanity, of light in the darkness and chaos as a a story of life bursting out in new ways. So it's like Janelle shared last week, if you were here for that, this is God's world now overlapping the fallen world. Something new is emerging here. In the beginning, this new beginning found in Messiah. So we start with a personification of a word, someone who is both with God and the very being of God. That's, you know, admittedly, that's an obscure thing to say, but it's teasing us. It's, it's, it's keeping things secret. But I already read the twist to you later on. We, we, we're talking about the Messiah of God, the Son of God. This is pointing towards incarnation, God taking human form. And the main point seems to be that there's a link between whoever this word is and God. So this word 
which we'll see is a person, is very important. Now, the Greek word for word is logos. It's a very common word that was used in the ancient world of the first century. Uh, John uses this word precisely because it's a word that's going to capture the attention of a diverse audience. Because both in the Jewish and Gentile world, this word was significant. It meant, it meant something. In the Gentile world of Greek philosophy, logos was representative of the soul of the universe. It was the, the rational principle from which everything else came. It was the creative and stabilizing force of the cosmos, much like in Star Wars. You know, we talk about the force. If an ancient Greek were to watch Star Wars, they would say, oh, I get it. When they get to the part about the force, they'd say, I get it. You're talking about Lagos. I still don't get the laser sword thing, but I get that part. (laughs) And then we'd have to move on because we'd say it's a lightsaber, not a laser sword. But anyway, now for the Jewish people, the Lagos was identified with the revelation of God. God spoke creation into being. In Genesis 1, which we were just pointing back to, in the beginning, you know, God said, let there be light. The words God said appear 11 times in Genesis 1 and 2. And then later on, God wrote his word on tablets of stone. God gave his word to the prophets. So this idea of logos, of word, was very significant to Jewish people. All of it revealing God's intent for life. In fact, that was the idea, the divine pattern, the the order is revealed through God's word. So when John uses the word logos, he's reaching across all the boundaries. He's calling out to Jewish people and Gentile people, Greek philosophers, everyone in between, because logos was familiar to everyone. Very important to keep in mind. John's telling everyone that the creative and stabilizing force, the revelation of God and the pattern for life, all of that, all of that stuff we've been looking for, it's embodied in Jesus. And this isn't just for ancient Greeks or for Jewish people. This extends to us where we're sitting here this morning. That stability, that wholeness that we long for, that meaning and purpose and dignity that we desire for life. All of this is found in Jesus, the Logos, God's order for life. In fact, what he reveals in these few short verses is is so meaningful for us today, and sure, it's theological, and maybe I'm losing some of you because of that. But the implications of this touch the very core of who we are as human beings, the very core of human, the basic human need. He says that the Logos was in the beginning with God as God, which means to us that we can look to Jesus to find answers about God. That's huge. I mean, for anyone who embraces theism at all. This is huge. This is a big deal. It wouldn't be an overstatement to say that John intends that his whole gospel is meant to be read in light of this opening verse. If we want to know what God is like, this is what he's saying in this. We look at Jesus. If we want to know what God is up to, we look at what Jesus did. If we want to know what God wants, We listen to what Jesus said. If we want to know what God's temperament is like, we focus on how Jesus interacted with people, what he demonstrated to them, what his attitude was like towards the marginalized and the broken. If we want to understand what God's values and priorities are, 
then, then we consider Jesus' mission and who it is that he reached out for. I truly believe if we want to keep our faith alive, and that's a big question that, that gets posed a lot. You know, I don't, you may not be aware of it, but the church in the United States is hemorrhaging people. Uh, the numbers are going down staggeringly so, more so than at any point in time in our history. And of course, everybody's running around like their hair is on fire. Like, what are we going to do? We're going to lose everybody. First of all, I'll tell you this. We are not because Jesus said that the gates of hell, that death will never overtake his church. Some brand of the church may fall apart. Evangelicalism may go by the wayside. Whatever denomination you can think of may collapse. Who cares? Well, I mean, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be like, I don't mean callously, but I just mean that does not affect the reality of what Jesus is doing in this world and in this church. But I'm telling you, if we want to preserve this faith, we are Christians. Who do we follow? (laughs) We follow Jesus. If we want to keep our faith, we need to keep our eyes fixated on him. And I, can I go there? No, you don't know that. You know, you're saying yes. You have no idea what I'm going to say. Because I'm going to say that there's far too many people who know what Hannity has to say, but they don't know Jesus. There's far too many people who will quote to me from all kinds of news pundits, but they have no clue what Jesus had to say. If we want to preserve our faith, we want to keep this. We want to hold on to this. We want to march forward into the future and provide something for the generations that come after us. We better keep our focus on Jesus and Jesus alone. I'm telling you. Well, okay. I guess you did like hearing it. I was expecting at least one tomato come flying out of the crowd. So John said, let's get back on track here. Back to the notes. Here we go. This will rescue us. John also says that the word gave life to everything that he created. And that by implication then tells us that we can find real eternal life through Jesus. And here's the other thing. Present church culture has reduced this down to mean that we get to go to heaven when we die. But eternal life is always presented in the present tense in the New Testament. It's not just a really long, long life on a cloud somewhere. And to clarify, I do believe that we will be in God's presence after death, but that's not all there is to it. Eternal life, as it's used in the New Testament sense, carries the implication of wholeness in this life, of being completed in God, of of having a satisfied heart and a meaningful life. It's being connected to that divine intent for life so that no matter what is going on around us or even to us, We know who we are. We know who we belong to. We know where we're going. When we're pressed in and we're challenged in this life, when, you know, that's when we remember God's pattern, his purpose for our lives is eternal life, a whole and satisfied life that never ends, a life that finds its sense of completion beyond present circumstances and something transcendent of that. That is the life that God's forming in us. In fact, John's poem calls the Lagos the creator. Everything that exists owns its existence to him. So not only do we find this life, this eternal life that touches the divine, but we also find that God's creative power 
is presently active in our lives through Jesus. God created all there is in, in, by the spoken word in the creation story. And, and John links to that here in this second genesis of new creation, a new life provided by Christ. That means all of that creative power at work in us. The first creation was described as the process of chaos being brought into order. Adam was even participating in that. You know, he's running around a little naked naturalist, naming the animals and, and, and tending the garden. With this new formation of life in Christ, there's this same process. This new life is being formed in us. That creative process is at work. That's why we're expanding and thinking and growing. That's why we don't nail things down and write them in stone because there's this ongoing act of creativity that God is at work at in our lives. And then, and then we actually get called into this journey of, of, of formation. That's a journey is such a good word for it. This Christian journey where piece by piece and bit by bit, the creative power of salvation brings order and at least significance to the things that seem so out of control for us in this world. And not just for ourselves, but also for the people in the world around us. Just like we heard last week, we become agents of this new creation. That's at work, advancing the values of God's love and grace and bringing order to the chaos and not adding to the chaos like we used to do. John describes the Logos as life and light that drives back the darkness of the fall. An illumination of wisdom. And oh my goodness, that just connects with so many things. I don't have time to get into it, but go look at Proverbs 8. Go look at, at the way in which wisdom is represented in, in this world and the light of wisdom. In, in God's word, I meant. And so we, we, we look at this and we contemplate then what this means to us. So that if we find Jesus, we actually find this divine insight to guide us through our daily lives. I mean, the stuff that we long for, the stuff that we're constantly grasping for, provided to us in this encounter with this one, this word. In Jesus, we've got access to wisdom and guidance for any and every decision that we make as it pertains to the issues of life. And I'm, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, you know, we stand there, Crest or Colgate, God, show me the way. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but as it pertains to life, right? I don't have to, I'm not going to insult your intelligence. We instinctively want to know, right? We instinctively, that's just in us. That's our whole conscience at work. You know, consciences have to be informed, but there's something innate deep within us that wants to know, you know, do right. Don't do wrong. We want to know how to choose right from wrong. We want to know how to live. And really all of philosophy and even science has tried to provide that sort of knowledge for us. But man's original downfall came when we ate the fruit of what? <laughs> the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> and we chose our own knowledge apart from a knowledge of God. And so to correct that, <laughs> that's that's this is this moments i'm sorry but to correct that he didn't pull out the the holy flamethrower and blaze this place and 
make us all disappear. No, to correct that, he provided light. It's a reversal. Everything that John is saying here, it's a reversal of what happened in the fall. This means that where once we staggered around aimlessly in this life, trying to find ourselves, we now have the light of God's intent revealed to us. We also know that this is a process. You know, it's only natural. If you've been in the dark for a long time and somebody flips on the lights, you know what happens. You can't see. It takes a while. You've got to adjust to the whole thing. And it takes, it's a process, a uh, time. If you get up in the night for any reason or whatever, always close one eye if you have to turn the light on. Because otherwise, you're stumbling around, knocking into doors or whatever. Those are free, by the way. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so you, you run a danger of saying, you know, we've got this illumination from God. We've got this enlightenment we run the danger then of thinking, oh, okay, we've become Christians and we know everything. And okay, we got this down and, you know, check. And move on. So that is not to say that we always understand everything. And this light, this illumination isn't always like perfect clarity. In fact, I, if I were to be honest and I look back through my Christian life, there's a lot of times I've still felt really in the dark uh, about things. But there's where it all comes back together because we're talking about the logos, right? We're talking about the word. In my early childhood, I lived in a really f- old farmhouse. I mean, it was like you know, we were out in the Michigan countryside, and in the evening, if the power ever went out, uh, it was pitch black because we were, like I said, out in the middle of nowhere. So you couldn't see anything. It was dark, dark. And I remember once during a storm, the power went out, and I was in the family room all by myself. My mom was somewhere off in the other side of the house. And, of course, as a very little kid, maybe 18. I'm just kidding. I was a really, really little kid. I started screaming and crying, you know, for my mom. I wanted, I couldn't see. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what was going on. I was scared in that moment. I couldn't see anything, but I heard my mom in such a soothing tone say, I'm here. Just follow my voice. You'll find me. And so I just kept following her words until I was able to fall into her arms. And then of course the lights come back on and you realize all was well. That's the logos, the word, the voice, the illumination. This is God's intention, his word, his voice. Jesus is saying, just follow it. I'll lead you home. You'll be all right. Our challenge is to learn to be still, trusting in the logos to light the way, to reveal the pattern of God's intent in all of this. Well, John's prologue, man, <laughs> provides an intriguing start to this gospel. I just hope that as we go through this study, that we'll experience Jesus in, in whole new ways. And if you haven't really known him, if, if this has kind of been, you know, just maybe a cultural experience or haven't known him in the way that we're talking about, I hope that you'll make a decision to determine to know him, to set out to follow him and find light and life in this creator. And I hope that we all see that the the one who created us, who knows us best, we'll see is also the one who loves us most and wants what's best for us. So let's 
set out to meet Jesus in John's words. And let's see what happens. Right on? All right, very cool. If you'll stand up with me, please. Father, we thank you so much for... What else can I say? We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for the light that he does provide for us. And you know, Lord, we live in a day and age. This is, it's unparalleled. We have access to information and news and so much stuff. It comes in blasting through our brains like a fire hydrant. It is so difficult to know up from down, right from wrong, left from right, in the midst of all of this noise. But Father, we thank you that we have this point of light. We thank you, Lord, that we can begin to pare it all down. What is this? Does this line up with Jesus? Does this move me towards Jesus? Father, you've given us a way through. Through all the waters of chaos, you've provided us a way through. Help us to follow that way. I pray it makes a difference in every one of our lives that we then can be participating in that light, to be a hope for others. I pray this for us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There is no fear Cause I believe There is no doubt Cause I have seen your faithfulness My fortress Over and over I have a hope Found in your name I have a strength Found in your grace Your faithfulness My fortress over and over Make me through the water Walk me through the fire Do what you are famous for What you are famous for Shut the mouths of lions Bring drop bombs to life And do what you are famous for What you are famous for I believe God, I believe in you. Release your love inside of me. Unleash your power for all to see. Spirit, come and fall on us over and over. Make way through the water, walk me through the fire. Do what you are famous for, what you are famous for. Shut the mouths of lions, bring drop bombs to life and do what you are famous for, what you are famous for. I believe in you. God, I believe. 
you God of exceedingly God of abundantly More than we ask or think Lord, you will never fail Your name is powerful Your word's unstoppable All things are possible in you God of exceedingly God of abundantly More than we ask or think Lord, you will never fail Your name is powerful Your word's unstoppable All things are possible What you are famous for, what you are famous for, shut the mouths of lions, bring troubles to life, and do what you are famous for, what you are famous for, make me through the water, walk me through the fire, do what you are famous for, what you are famous for, shut the mouths of lions. Bring troubles to life and do what you are famous for, what you are famous for. I believe in you, God, I believe in you, I believe in you, God, I believe in you. There is no fear, cause I believe. There is no doubt, cause I have seen your faithfulness, my fortress, over and over. We thank you for that truth, Lord. We thank you. So, uh, listen, we were uh, asked to, to pray for someone uh, who's going to be um, uh, moving away. And uh, so we want to do that real quick. Allison, you're, you're moving. So if you, some of you that are nearby, Allison, put your hand up here and, and let's just pray for her as she, as she uh, leaves our presence. Father, we pray for Allison now as uh, she moves. And, and we pray, Father, that, that you guide her and lead her and her family into your life. Father, we put them in your hands and we know in your hands everyone is safe. But we pray, Father, that she's a blessing wherever she goes to as she's been a blessing here. We pray for peace and unity and grace in her family. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, uh, if anybody has any needs that they need prayed for, feel free to come on up. We'll be happy to pray with you and see what God will do. Otherwise, uh, oh, and I heard that there's a bunch of baked goods left from the bake sale. So if you need another sugar high to help you get home, uh, head over there and grab those or probably start looking for discounts at that point. So, uh, but uh, let's, uh, let's speak this blessing on each other before we bail out. May Christ be a light to illumine and guide you. Christ be a shield to overshadow you. Christ be under you. Christ be over you. Christ beside you on your left and on your right, both in this world.